I uh, was just made aware of something I wanted to share with you, and uh, I just heard um, John MacArthur from his service this morning making an announcement. Uh, he's been out of the pulpit for the last two weeks. This isn't the first time this year. He's had several different stints where he's been out of the pulpit, and people assumed that it was planned or something, but it wasn't. He and his wife, Patricia, both have been in the hospital uh, this past week, so uh, they've asked for prayer, and so I want us to take time to pray for, pray for him. Uh, he had a, an, an ablation on his heart, and apparently it went well, and so we're thankful for that, but this is the second time he's had some uh, heart episodes. And uh, then his wife, this is the, she fell and broke her hip. And so she had surgery on that. And he said, this is the second time. And he goes, she's only got two. So uh, uh, he said that she was on her way home from the hospital while he was telling his church this morning. And then he proceeded to preach for an hour. So uh, he's doing well. And uh, also, there's a, a movie coming out. It's going to hit theaters on the 28th. And it's put together by Grace Community Church there. And it's called Essential Church. I don't know if it's... Uh, I haven't seen anything about it being local or not yet. But uh, if it is, go see it. Because the more times and more people that see it, the more theaters they're going to put it in. And it. Uh, I heard the trailer on it. It has to do with Gavin Newsom and his attack on Grace Community Church during the COVID virus and the shutdowns and that kind of thing. And that's the time you'll remember where, especially in California, uh, casinos, strip clubs, uh, tattoo parlors, things, bars, they were all essential. They could remain open, but churches were not essential. And uh, the state of California filed suit against uh, MacArthur's church there in California. And they've been tied up in courts for quite a while, and they've won every one of them so far, even got a settlement. And so praise the Lord for that statement because that affects all of us in our freedom of speech. But uh, the movie is called Essential Church, and it's about that time and uh, uh, that situation. So uh, please make sure you support those kind of things because the more we do, the more they are, our theaters are willing to take them and uh, to show them. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and let's have a word of prayer for him. Father, you know how our lives have been affected by Dr. MacArthur. How much we've learned, how many people have been trained, not only in the U.S., but all around the world as the Master Seminary sets up campuses and trains people in foreign countries. And we're confident, Lord, that uh, when they are trained by that seminary, they are trained in the truth, and we thank you for that. And we also know from some of our own problems in our own convention, and as well as other schools, they don't always stay true to the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, that the Master's Seminary would stay true to the gospel, even after MacArthur's death and years into the future, generations into the future. May that be a school, and may that church be a church that stands for the truth of the gospel and we know Lord that no one lives forever and we don't know when your plan is to call him home but we pray for him and we pray for his health we pray for his wife's recovery as well and we pray for the church as this must put them in some uh, times of questioning and a little bit of turmoil what's going to happen and reassure the members there that you are sovereignly in control of that church and just as you brought a young John MacArthur there 
in his late 20s, early 30s, back in the late 60s, you can bring somebody else up as well because you're never without a witness and you are never shorthanded on resources. We pray you would provide for them and we thank you for them and pray your blessing on them and your healing hand upon them. And uh, we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, I want to uh, kind of tag into what we were doing this morning and... Uh, I want you to think about and turn with me to Matthew 24, 24. Matthew 24, 24. That's easy to remember. And Jesus says something that is extremely important. And uh, we don't want to ever forget it. This is something that we have got to uh, take to heart. And it's a warning. It's Christ's warning uh, that he gives to his disciples. And it's recorded in the word of God because it's a warning for us as well. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. Miracles, in other words. To deceive, if possible, even the elect. This tells you it is a hardcore, full-court press to try to destroy Christianity and to try to get people to follow a false god. You know, that's always been an issue. Always been an issue, hasn't it? Following the true and the living God. Even back in the garden, Satan, you know, asked Eve, Has God said that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, he knew the answer to that. And uh, Eve goes, Well, no, he didn't say that. He said, We just can't eat of this tree and neither shall we touch it lest we die. And, and as we said before, there are a couple of things wrong with that. Number one, God didn't say don't touch the tree. She was adding to the word kind of a legalistic approach to things. And then the other thing that she said in there, lest you die, God never said don't touch it, you might die. He told Adam and Eve very clearly, don't touch it for in the day you do, or don't eat it from it, for in the day you do, you will, anybody know the word? Surely. Surely die. That was a promise from God. You know, everybody's wanting to claim promises from God. Well, not all of them are great promises. Some of them are kind of negative like that. And uh, then Satan just comes right out and goes, You will not surely die. For the Lord knows in the day you eat of it that you will be like God's, having your eyes open for good and evil. In other words, uh, the temptation there was, Don't follow God. Eat of this tree. And just be God yourself. And that's basically what we've been doing. And um, when we think about all of the false gods that are out there. Uh, Isaac and I, when we were in India, we saw our share of those gods and goddesses. As soon as you get off the plane and walk into the airport in Mumbai, there's this big grotesque statue there of somebody. I don't know who it was. And, uh, you know, they worship those things. We saw them in cabs. They would have them on their dashboards. And uh, just all over the place. And we think, uh, oh, well, they're worshiping a false god. Well, I guess maybe we could say uh, that's true. But technically, it's no god at all. That's just a chunk of concrete or a chunk of wood. It has no power in and of itself at all other than demonic power, right? And so uh, we look at that and we go, wow, how could anybody do that? But even in that... When you create a God, when you can create a statue 
uh, an idol that you will bow before and that you will worship, that still kind of has you in control, doesn't it? Because you fashion it and you put it there and you determine what you're going to do with it. And people have decided, you know, all of these different pagan religions, what they are, what the rules are, who they're going to worship. In other words, it's just like going back to the garden. You shall be as gods. How much more godlike can you be than to create your own god? I was at Penn Square Mall one time, and I can't remember the store we were in, but um, there was a box there, and it said, OMG, you know what that stands for, and it said, create your own deity. Now, I'm sure it was kind of a joke or a novelty kind of thing, but as I saw that, I thought, that's what humans have been doing ever since they've been in the Garden of Eden. I've got to have something to worship, and uh, I, I would feel bad if everybody starts worshiping me, so I'll make something else that I'm really in control of, and uh, you know, we'll worship that. That's been going on. But there have been so many people over the decades that have claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be Christ. Even Charles Manson of the Manson family, the one who murdered all those people in the late 60s, even he claimed to be a Messiah. Reverend Moon, you remember him? You don't hear anything about the Moonies much anymore or the Unification Church. But he claimed to be God. In, in fact, he actually said, Adam number one in the garden blew it and he failed. Adam number two, Jesus Christ, couldn't pull it off. They crucified him and, and he blew it. So Adam number three is, uh, he said, is me. And he was coming as a Messiah from Korea to spread his message all over the world through the Unification Church. They used to be at all the airports back when you could do all that kind of stuff. The Moonies, we called them back then. And uh, so he claimed to be a Messiah. Hitler kind of had some uh, messianic tendencies and those kind of things. A lot of people like that. But um, Jesus said, beware of these because they're going to do some things that will deceive you, if possible, even to deceive the very elect. Now talk about uh, putting something together that is, you know, the wow factor and and all of that to take true believers that kind of are, are questioning maybe a little bit in that. And um, so when I thought about that, I thought about what we were talking about this morning. John saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later he tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And so we're very clear in John 1, the person he's talking about is Jesus, and there is no other one. And uh, you can't have a substitute Jesus, or a semi-Jesus, or a, a kind of close, nearly almost there Jesus. To miss it is to miss the whole thing, and to miss salvation absolutely and completely. Now I thought about the verse of Jesus, Matthew 24, 24, warning us against these false Christs. And uh, I thought, you know, the Apostle Thomas, he gets a bad rap. What's the nickname for him? Doubting Thomas. Sounds kind of negative. And uh, what's with this guy? He won't even believe. But when I read Matthew 24, 24, I'm thinking, maybe Thomas was just being careful and obeying the words of the Lord. Remember, in John 20, Jesus made an appearance to his disciples and Thomas wasn't there. And so when the disciples go, oh, Thomas, you got to see it. The Lord came and he appeared to us. And Thomas may have been thinking of this verse. 
Well, what if that's a false Christ? What if that is a demonic impersonation of Christ? I'm not going to believe until I see the nail prints in his hands and his feet and can touch the uh, spear place in his side. And uh, you'll notice that whenever Jesus appeared to Thomas, he said, Thomas, go ahead, see him, see him, touch the spear print in my side. I thought it was interesting that he did not rebuke Thomas. Not a word of rebuke in there. He did say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I'll take that for us. But he didn't rebuke Thomas, did he? Because I don't think Thomas was expressing doubt in the resurrection. I think he was expressing a good deal of caution. And he was being careful about the warning of false Christ. And so should we. There are a lot of things going on out there that are not of God. And yet they have the name of Jesus attached to them. Not everybody who says Lord, Lord or Jesus is Lord or whatever. According to Matthew 7 is actually a child of God. Be very careful. Find out what they believe and don't attach yourself to something too readily or too easily because there are, uh, the Greek there is, uh, uh, says pseudo-Christ. Pseudo-Christ. They know what they're doing and it is actually uh, a fake. They're not just deceived. They're not just mistaken. They are uh, fake Christ. And so uh, maybe Thomas was looking at that. You know, Thomas also gets a bad rap because when uh, Jesus is going to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, some of the disciples are going, Lord, you know that uh, everything's really hot in Jerusalem. Bethany is close to that. Are you sure you want to go there? And Thomas is the one that said, let us go and we'll die with him. So, uh, you know, we kind of give him a bad rap. Maybe he wasn't merely a doubter or a skeptic, as some people say. Maybe he was obedient. And maybe he was careful taking the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then I thought about something else. Beware of false Christ. Beware of false gods. We could think of it like that. Maybe this is a preparation because the apostles were not always going to be in Jerusalem, in familiar territory. Now, I know they had some problems with the Jews, but uh, at least... In the early days of Christianity, we shared the same scripture, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and we still do. And uh, the same God, the God that is revealed in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the God that we worship as well. And all of the prophecies, Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of those, we believe in those same prophets. And we look at the Psalms as we do on Wednesday night. And that's what the Jews would sing. That was a part of their religion. And so that was familiar. And the early church was birthed in the cradle of Judaism, wasn't it? Jesus was a Jew. The early disciples were uh, Jews. Most of the New Testament was written by Jews. Uh, Mark and Luke would be an exception to that. But the other ones were Jews. And our Jewish roots run very, very deep. And in fact, for the early uh, times of our faith, the Roman government just didn't mess with Christianity much because they just considered it to be a sect of Judaism, right? And uh, so it was kind of comfortable. Paul could go into the synagogues and it made people mad, but he could reason with them from the scriptures 
that Jesus is Christ is the Christ. Why? Because we believe the same set of scriptures. And Paul could take the scriptures that they read in the synagogue and he could show them how Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies because Jesus was local to them. He was a Jew. He was well known. And also the scriptures were what they had in common. But they weren't always going to stay that way. You see, the Jews introduced monotheism to the world. Before then, people believed in many gods and gods of different races, gods of different uh, trades and jobs, uh, work, that kind of thing. And there were gods of different nations and tribes and, and lands. And so uh, we've said this before, if two uh, tribes went to war, then the one who won assumed that their god was stronger than the other tribes or nations' gods. And that's the way they worked on everything. That's how it worked. And this is what the disciples, these disciples that were steeped in Judaism, in monotheism, and in the Old Testament, are going to be sent out taking a gospel to pagans, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. They were flat-out pagans. And um, if you want to know how difficult that would be, just try going out to... Uh, San Francisco and going out on the street and just find some homeless people on the street, some drug addicts on the street, find some uh, people that follow the New Age movement and uh, try to talk to them and reason with them about the Bible and about Christ. Well, you can't really do that because they don't follow reason and they don't follow your line of thinking and they reject the Bible as the Word of God. So at least... The early part of Christianity was a little easier because you could sit down with uh, Uncle Shlomo and you could open up the Bible and you both could look at Isaiah 53 and then ask the question, what, what does this mean and how is this fulfilled and what is the prophecy here? And, uh, you know, Uncle Shlomo might become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ like the Ethiopian eunuch did. He, came to, he was evidently a proselyte. And he came to Jerusalem to worship. He's on his way home reading the scroll. And Philip, the deacon, runs up to him and said, uh, What are you reading? And he said, Well, I'm reading out of Isaiah. Do you understand it? How can I understand it unless somebody talks to me about it? And so Philip gets in the chariot. And while they're uh, going along there in the desert, they read through Isaiah and they reason together. And what happens? Then the Holy Spirit moves in on that situation. And the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved from reading the scripture and from understanding it. And then he says, here's much water. What does doth hinder me from being baptized? And so you had that going for you in the Jewish culture. But you're not going to do that in Rome, not with Romans. You're not going to do that in Athens, not with Greeks. You're not going to do that in these neighboring countries in the Roman Empire. It's going to be tough. In fact, for an example of what they were up against and what they were like, I'd like for you to turn in your Bible to the book of Jonah. Go back to the Old Testament near the end. Find the book of Jonah and go to chapter 1 and then go down to verse 4. So Jonah 1 verse 4. Now this is the famous story, Jonah and the whale. We talk about it. It's really uh, a, more of a story about a disobedient prophet. And a lot of speculation about why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And I'll just throw this out to you because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria and Assyria was one of the most brutal, bloodthirsty empires ever to be upon the earth. Just brutal. And 
Jonah knew that it had been prophesied that Assyria would attack and conquer Israel. That was the northern kingdom. It was divided at that time. And I think what Jonah was saying is Nineveh's the capital city of Assyria. And if I don't preach to Nineveh, Nineveh's destroyed, the Assyrian Empire falls, and then they don't attack Israel. I think he was, his patriotism, uh, like a lot of us, his patriotism uh, came before his obedience to God. Got to always be careful with those kind of things. And I think Jonah was just a tremendous patriot, didn't want to go. And I think we find a clue in that after Nineveh has revival. Jonah goes, I knew it. I knew that you were a God who is compassionate and merciful because it's always been that way. If God warns you that he's going to judge you, hey, take heart. That means there's hope. He warns you so you can repent. If he didn't want you to repent, he would just bring the judgment without any warning. So that's what's happening here. And uh, Jonah thinks he can run from the Lord, so he goes and gets on a ship to Tarshish. And uh, it's very interesting. I'm going to read, I think I've got this out of the English Standard Version. And it says uh, uh, in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Can't you picture that? The Lord going, you think you're running from me? And here it comes, okay? And there was a great and mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now when the mariners, meaning the sailors, when they were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Now you get the way that verse is uh, worded. They didn't all cry out to the same God. They each had their own. They must have been from different countries, different tribes, spoke different languages, had different backgrounds. So they all had kind of their own gods. Okay? And so they cried out of that, and uh, they then hurled the cargo. It's the same word that God hurled the storm down. Now they're hurling out the cargo. And uh, heading where they were heading, they probably had a lot of material to make different kinds of metal. So it was probably very, very heavy and very valuable cargo. And they're tossing it overboard. And uh, the scripture goes on to say, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Then it says, but Jonah had gone down. You know, if we stopped right there, we could say, boy, he sure did. He, that's all he did was go down. He went down to uh, Joppa. He went down on his way to Tarshish. He's going down into the ship. And before long, as we know, he's going down into the ocean. That's what happens when you backslide. You don't go up. You're not finding liberty. You're going down. You're going down. And so it says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Deep, deep sleep. Isn't it sad? The pagans are up screaming to their gods, lightening the load on the ship and begging for mercy from deities that don't even exist. And what's happening to the man of God? He's asleep. He's asleep. Kind of like we do. The world around us is in turmoil and they're in a storm and so many times we find ourselves going oh well it doesn't affect me I'm going to heaven and we just go to sleep I don't know that's just kind of sad and he's asleep to Nineveh he's asleep to the Lord he's asleep to his assignment inner part of the ship and he is fast asleep okay so what happens look at this so the captain really 
The captain, not a sailor, not a crew member, the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. I mean, we've cried out, nothing's happening. Uh, Cry out to yours. Maybe your God can do something about this. Not a statement of faith. It's kind of a statement of, uh, it can't hurt. Can't hurt, you know. Heard somebody say one time they were watching a boxing match and uh, one of the boxers did the, you know, thing like that. And the kid said, does that help? And he goes, it does if he can punch, right? And that's what they're kind of doing here. Do you believe that God? No, but, you know, maybe there's something to it. And maybe if we get enough positive energy, enough mojo going together here, we can get somebody to hear us and do something about it. So arise and call out to uh, your God. Perhaps the God will give, a, uh, give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know uh, on whose account this evil has come upon us. They believed in karma. Okay, Karma is not a Christian thing. It's Hindu. And it uh, means that uh, it doesn't mean you're going to reap what you sow. It means you are going to be punished for your sins in a previous life. And you've got to live enough lives good enough to burn off the karma. That's kind of not exactly, but kind of what they're saying here. Somebody has to be the reason for this storm. Somebody's done something wrong. Well, in this case, they were right, weren't they? And so uh, they cast the lots. The book of Proverbs says that God can even control the casting of lots, kind of like a dice. And it came upon uh, Jonah when they cast the lot. And uh, then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. This, and the word evil there can also be translated calamity. Uh, what is your occupation? And uh, where do you come from? What is your country? Now, why are they asking all those questions? Because they're trying to figure out his God because they believed in gods of occupations or trades, gods of regions, gods of certain areas, gods of nations, that kind of thing. And so they're picking his brain here, trying to figure him out. And he goes, and of what what people are you? And you remember Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew and I serve the true and the living God. And um, I'm, you know, throw me overboard and uh, everything will be fine. Well, the pagans didn't want to do that. They don't want to murder. Sometimes pagans are nicer than sometimes Christians, aren't they? And sometimes they're more thoughtful. So they did everything they could to keep from throwing him overboard. But then they threw him overboard and then the sea and the wind and everything becomes calm. We kind of see that motif over and over in Scripture because our God controls the weather and He controls that whole situation. So what does paganism look like? Think about it. Think about how similar this is to uh, who we are at this particular time in uh, our nation and in our history. Uh, How pagans think. Think about this. They thought that the sea was kind of a living entity. And we go, oh, isn't it something they were so ignorant? Have you ever heard anybody talk about climate change kind of in the same way? And Mother Earth 
and mother nature and all of those pagan terms that just completely bypass God and they and Al Gore he said well we've got to protect the earth because the earth has a fever you know and they personalize the earth and that's not really all that different than the way the pagans would have looked upon the sea at that particular time as though the sea were trying to punish them or do something to them we're not all that much different now notice the next thing it says they prayed to their own God so they each had their own God. Maybe some of them had a few in common, but uh, not. Uh, th- this is worded that way to show us that, you know, it was cool to have you have your God, I have my God, you believe what you believe, I believe what I want to believe. You ever heard anything like that? You ever seen the bumper sticker that says coexist with all those religious symbols on it? They don't mean that, of course, because they would persecute you and me and all of us in a heartbeat if they could. And I heard somebody say one time, the only time there's really true freedom of religion is when religions are equal. And the only reason they tolerate other religions is because one is getting ready to overtake all of them. And when it does, watch out. Here it comes. And so, uh, you know, these people, these sailors, they had differing morals, different, differing ethical codes. And uh, in other words, there was no absolute truth. Have you heard anybody lately, maybe on TV or something, say, well, you know, uh, I know that's what you believe, but I don't believe that. But I'm okay to let you have your truth, and I'll have my truth. And we'll just, you know, we'll just go along and get along. That's kind of the way all of this was. Notice that they prayed to their own gods, and they did it just in case. They would even be willing to pray to Jonah, the Hebrews, God, if it could get us out of a jam. How many people that live in America today that, uh, well, go back to 9-11. You know, the churches after 9-11 were full from coast to coast for about two weeks. You know what that was saying? We don't really believe this, but just in case, there's something to it. And you know, just in case faith doesn't save anybody. It takes a total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance of your sin and surrender to Him as the King, the Master, and the Lord of your life. Uh, But how many people have just said, well, there might be something to this. So they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they went through a class, they joined a church, they changed some of the habits in their life. Maybe they quit smoking, maybe they quit sleeping around immorally or something like that. And uh, because of that, they got the just-in-case religion. I don't really know that this is true. I'm not really certain, but just in case we can do that, there's really not any absolute truth. And that's why you find, uh, it's always astounded me that in our own government, so many people, including our president, can claim to be a devout Roman Catholic and still be pro-abortion. That doesn't even fit. Okay, And so it leads me to believe that there are a lot of people who do that and the only reason they go to Mass and the only reason they have anything to do with that is uh, just in case. Just in case. A lot of people are living that kind of thing. So they're praying to their own gods and other people's gods just in case. This is a superstition. It's not really faith. And then also they saw their gods as being limited, uh, personal. This is just good for me and uh, regional or racial Uh, you know they're the God of the Hebrews the God of the Greeks the God of 
of whomever. They didn't really see one true and living God who is sovereign and all-powerful over all. The thought that there would be any being that would be omnipresent, uh, omniscient, and omnipotent just never even entered their mind. There were gods who fought. There were gods who tricked each other. There were gods who played tricks on people and were antagonistic toward people and toward each other, all of that kind of stuff. So this is uh, kind of, I think, if you look at those characteristics and the way the sailors believed, we're not far from that in our culture today, are we? We, we may not have all of those kind of things, and we may still have some things going for us, but we're not as far off as we would like to believe. We are living in post-Christian America, and I would go ahead and say we're living in a pagan society where people just think you can just do what you want, believe what you want, hold on to the God of your choice. You used to have signs outside of small towns in the south, I know. I don't know about other parts, but I remember these. And they, it would say, attend the church of your choice on Sunday. And I never saw the church of your choice. It's, can you imagine? Here's a building. What is that? Well, that's the church of your choice. Well, that's the one I want to go to. Um, of course, I know that's not what they meant. But that's kind of the philosophy uh, that's been around for a long time in America. It doesn't matter what you believe. You do you and I'll do me. You have your truth, I'll have my truth. And uh, as Oprah Winfrey said one time in response to one of her guests, there cannot possibly be one way to God. Okay? We don't like that. We, we think it's a democracy. We can vote on our God and vote on our way and do, just do whatever it is that we want to do. And so I see that paganism. And uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles now, find the book of Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to see something here in these first group of verses. There are some things here that I think uh, we all want and we're all uh, looking for. And um, you're not going to find it anywhere but Jesus. But Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, it's beautiful what Paul writes here. And he says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. I wish that could be said of all of us. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. For all patience and long suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. You didn't qualify yourself. He qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. Can you say amen to that? That's what Paul prayed for them to have. That's what you can have and do have if you're a child of God and walking with Him. I mean, that's what we're looking for. And I, I just wrote down some things here. What we need. Well, we need knowledge of His will. Wouldn't that be nice to know the will of the Lord? We need spiritual wisdom. We need to know how to apply what the Lord says and what to do with it and have understanding. That would be great. We certainly need changed lives. 
uh, would be a big change if we were to walk worthy of the Lord and we were also being fruitful. In the first part of verse 10 it says that. We all want to grow in the Lord. That's the second part of verse 10. We want to have strength and power. That's verse 11. Um, we all want to have and instinctively know we need to have a grateful spirit. You know, even lost people talk about that. We ought to be grateful. We ought to be thankful. And I always wonder, well, who are you giving thanks to? When they have Thanksgiving and you see them on TV and they're all around the turkey and they go, oh, we, we just want to be grateful. I'm grateful and I'm thankful. And they'll name the things that they're thankful for. And some of them are really dumb things. But uh, I always wonder, who are you thankful to? And a lot of them, probably themselves, they're thankful that they were able to pull it off and thankful to do it. Well, we all need to be thankful. We need to be more grateful. That's a part of the Christian life. And then we all want deliverance from darkness and we want salvation. Okay? Now, here's my question. Can the gods of the sailors in Jonah give you any of that? Yes or no? No. Can the gods of materialism, can the gods of sex, can the gods of personal achievement and personal production and uh, capitalism and all of those things, can they do any of that for us? No. Some of the people that have been the most successful in our nation, and I'm, all, I'm grateful for our nation and I'm grateful for capitalism. I think it's the best system we've got, but it's not perfect because sinners run it. Our government is a good government. I love our Constitution. Have you read it lately? You ought to read the Declaration of the Constitution sometime. And uh, we're kind of trampling all over it right now. But it's a wonderful document. But it's not perfect. And our government has never been perfect because it's inadequate. It's full of sinners. And uh, the same thing is true with religion. Build the biggest churches and cathedrals you want. Come up with beautiful ceremonies and all of that. And they will still stink to high heaven and be inadequate because... Uh, it's the product of sin. But I got something for you. Let's go back to Colossians 1 and let's keep reading. Because there is a God who can do that. This is why it's so important to get it right. Verse 15 of chapter 1 of Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That means He outranks everything. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or um, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Again, that's saying he outranks everything. He leads it. And in him all things consist or are held together. That's why our earth doesn't fly apart. That's why the spinning of the earth doesn't throw you out into the universe somewhere. That's why we have gravity. That's why we have the right air. That's why we have the right temperatures, even though it feels like we just move closer to the sun. But uh, we'll, we'll make it. And uh, that's because Christ holds it all together. We don't get too hot. We don't get too cold. We don't uh, do any of those things. And he is also, spiritually, the head of the body, the church. So who's the head of the church? Well, certainly not me. And it's not any of our elders or staff or anybody like that. And it's certainly not you, um, none of us. It's Christ who is the head of the church, right? I got an 
email one time years ago that told me I was a lousy CEO. And I wrote him back and I said, you're telling me. I'm not a CEO. I'm not the head of anything, right? We forget sometimes who's the head of the church. Christ is. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And look at this, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ is not going to play second fiddle to anyone. Right? He is not going to be the one that says, well, I'll step aside. Now, we read in the Bible about Jesus humbling himself and uh, yielding his rights and things like that. Well, that was for then. And that was so he could be our sacrifice. But not anymore. Not anymore. He is Lord of all. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? To the glory of God the Father. And you either do it here and mean it, or you're going to do it there. You either do it now because you want to, because of the Spirit of God drawing you, and it's the most wonderful thing in the world to say, there is a God, there is a Master, there's someone who is Lord, there's someone who is boss, there's someone in control, and whew, I'm so glad it's not me. Because if you think things are in a mess now, turn it over to me. It can't get any worse. Yeah, it can. If I'm in charge of it, it can get a lot worse. If you're in charge of it, it can get a lot worse. But we have a blessed, wonderful, heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and they are controlling all things, and it's working exactly as it was planned, exactly as the Scripture uh, has predicted it. And so we can go to sleep at night. Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which the Christian sleeps at night. You know that God is in control and that he does all things well. He's not just a product of somebody's dreams or visions or speculations or nightmares and they decided to make a God and worship it. He's not just the unknown God like uh, in Athens. Just, just well, we've got to do something. A sheep uh, laid down there and we don't have a statue. Well, let's make one to the unknown God. Oh, that's a horrible, horrible thing. This God that we serve is preeminent over all. He is the only way to heaven. He is the sovereign of the universe. And he is loving beyond any love you could ever imagine. Merciful beyond any mercy you could ever imagine. Abundant in love and abundant in mercy. He'll never run out. And he's the God who sent his son to go to the cross to die for a sinner like you. And just to tell you, when you say, Oh God, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Trust my son. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior who is superior to everything else. And so you find that whether John is writing to Jews and Greeks both, or whether Paul is writing like he is in Colossians to pagans, you know what you find? They're both in harmony and they both agree and they, point, and they both point to the same God, the same Savior, and they say the same things about Him. No wonder evolution moves so hard. Have you noticed how many times the Bible has spoken in what we read this morning and in uh, Colossians? There's something about Jesus being the Creator and this world goes, No, He's not. We'll not accept that because if He's the Creator, then He outranks all of us. Right? And we have to conform to his morality. And people say, no, we will not have this man to be king over us. They said that in ancient Israel and they're still saying it today. And that's the cry of the human heart. 
But we have the truth. And we must live the truth. We must embrace the truth. And we must proclaim the truth. Because it's the only hope that we have. And that's why Paul said, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So let the glory of God shine through you. Embrace Him and be confident in Him and in His Word and who He is. And don't let the world bully you and don't let them cause you to doubt even one bit because Jesus is indeed the Lord of all and He's already won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Amen? Amen. And so when you think about that, that's Jesus. And notice how it all fits together, hand in glove. Doesn't matter whether it's Paul or whether it's John or anybody else. They all proclaim the same God, and they proclaim Him in the same way. And that's... That's where we travel. That's the line and the family to which we belong. Praise His holy name forever. Heavenly Father, we know something that the world doesn't know. May we not keep it a secret. Jesus is ruler and Lord of the universe. May we tell it to our children and our children's children. May we tell it to our friends and our neighbors. May we never be ashamed or embarrassed by all of it. May we never bow the knee to pseudoscience but may we always go to the word of god and say that jesus rules and reigns may we always trust you even when things go uh, the way that we would not like for them to go may we always understand our allegiance is to christ first foremost and forever and we pray this lord help us help our unbelief in jesus name we pray amen